0: We beg you, Father, that you would, through your spirit, open our hearts and minds. May we receive your word and your truth. For we are just so desperate for your presence, and we need you to reveal yourself. Communicate yourself to us today. Give us the eyes of faith to see you, so that we can be further transformed, conformed to your Son's image for that, as our heart's desire, is just more of you, your glory. So we ask for your hand of blessing, for your spirit's work to be active here this morning in the name of our Savior and love, Jesus. Amen. Mark 1.15, Jesus begins his ministry by announcing, the time is fulfilled, the kingdom of God is at hand, repent, and believe in the gospel. And so this verse here in Mark 1 is at the core. It's the heart of what Jesus taught, the kingdom of God. Luke 4, verses 43 say, Jesus speaking, I must preach the good news of the kingdom of God, for I was sent for this purpose. And so Jesus in his own words, says that his Purpose. He came, was sent by the Father. The purpose was to preach the gospel of the kingdom. So understanding the kingdom of God is central. It is the core of understanding the person and the work of Jesus. And so today as we return to our preaching series where we've been asking a profound question, who is Jesus? Today, we're answering that question and we're saying, well, today, we're going to see from the word that Jesus is the conquering king. That is who Jesus is. He is the conquering king. And so, knowing and believing that Jesus is our sovereign king should change everything in our lives. So, on this Friday morning, I'm going to ask you a couple of questions. Do you need peace in the middle of the chaos of your life? Is your soul just desperate for healing? Do you crave a greater purpose than simply just getting through every day? Do you find yourself turning to an idol hoping that maybe this time it's going to satisfy. And yet, every time, all it does is it leaves you feeling even more empty. So do you need freedom today? Deep inside, do you have this longing, this this hunger to have a greater passion, to have real joy in life? Well, you're not going to find it by looking to a person, a relationship, a job, more money, material possessions, a better holiday, a better house, a nicer car. All of these fleeting things that we think will make us happy, that we think will finally satisfy, will only leave us more hungry and more empty and more enslaved. Because all of these desires, these cravings inside of you are put there by God. And the reason is that what you need is you need Jesus. Your soul is just hungry for him. So God made you, he designed you for you to glorify him and to enjoy him forever. And so when we enjoy God, when we are satisfied, so the enjoyment of God is glorifying to Him. So if wondering, well how do I glorify God? You enjoy Him. You savor His goodness. You delight in Him. And when you do that, that is glorifying to Him. And so we as humans are just desperate to know Jesus. We really are more desperate than we realize for the fullness of His presence. And so my prayer has been that we We'll get but a glimpse of our King Jesus today. So read with me in Psalm 110. The desire is that we would treasure Jesus because the more that we treasure him and then we trust him, that will lead us to obey him. Psalm 110. The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand, The Lord is at your right hand. He will shatter kings on the day of his wrath. He will execute judgments among the nations, filling them with corpses. He will shatter chiefs over the wide earth. He will drink from the brook by the way. Therefore, he will lift up his head. This psalm is the most quoted Old Testament passage in the New Testament. It's quoted by Paul. By Peter, by Jesus, it it appears all over the New Testament. So, for example, in Mark 12, verse 36, what you see there is Jesus himself quotes this psalm. So, Jesus says that David himself, King David, a thousand years before Jesus was born, that David wrote Psalm 110. And Jesus is indicating that this psalm is pointing to him as the Messiah, And if you look in Acts chapter 2, verse 34, on the Pentecost, when the Spirit came upon the disciples, Peter gets up and he preaches and he quotes Psalm 110. And he says that Jesus is greater than David and Jesus ascended into the heavens and Jesus is the promised conquering king who defeats the enemy. And so it's throughout the New Testament, Psalm 110 is a very foundational text because it points to the Messiah. It points to Jesus, the anointed one, who rules, it says, with a mighty scepter. Kings hold a scepter. And it says that Jesus, it says, rules in the midst of his enemies. And it says, and he will shatter kings on the day of his wrath, and that he, Jesus, will execute judgment. And so he is the king, he is the judge, he is the creator. And so, what you're seeing here in Psalm 110, it's pointing to who Jesus is. It's pointing to the kingdom of Christ. So, let's look in this text and find three marks, three characteristics about the kingdom of Jesus. So, number one, the sovereign reign of Christ. That's what this is. This text is describing the sovereign reign of Christ, Messiah, is marked by, number one, by authority. And so the kingdom of God, Christ's kingdom, is marked by authority. Jesus is the creator, and he is the judge. It says he executes judgment. So he is the sovereign king. So by sovereign means that he has absolute power and control, complete ruling authority. So Jesus is independent. He is autonomous. He is all-powerful. He has all Authority, there is no authority above Jesus. So he does not give an account to anyone. Everyone gives account to Jesus. So all of us are accountable to him because Jesus is God. He is the king. He is the sovereign. And so David wrote this at a time in 1,000 B.C., when he was the sovereign, he was the king over Israel. And yet, when he writes this poem, the Spirit of God is inspiring King David. And in verse one, he says, "'The Lord says to my Lord,' which Peter picks this same theme up in Acts chapter two, saying that King David recognized that even though he was the sovereign, he was the king over Israel, that he was under the authority of the coming Messiah, It was under the authority of the supreme sovereign, the supreme king, Jesus. And verse 1 also says that this promised Messiah is greater than David. So it says, sit at my, the Lord's, right hand. And so the Messiah who is coming, Jesus, is sitting at the right hand of God. And so at the right hand refers to power and authority. That's what the right hand refers to here. So it's describing that Jesus here is divine. He's being equated with God at his right hand of power and authority and glory. This is what it's saying about Jesus. And that Messiah will come and that he will defeat all of God's enemies. He says, I will make your enemies your footstool. He's going to stand upon in victory and crush the enemy, like we saw a few weeks ago as the promised seed of the woman who will crush the head of the serpent, He will stand upon and crush the head of the enemy. And verse 2 says that Jesus, Messiah, will rule in the midst of God's enemies. And so he is the conquering, victorious king who has all authority. The kingdom of God, Demands total allegiance. Not partial. So to be a member of the kingdom of God means that we give Jesus all loyalty, all allegiance, because He alone is worthy of your allegiance. You are not the king, He is the king. <clears throat> Mark 10:15. Jesus says that we must, it says, receive the kingdom of God. Now, some people think about the kingdom of God, they think that it's a place, it's a location, like in heaven. So heaven is up there, and that's the kingdom of God. Or, or we use the word kingdom of God and don't even really know exactly what it means. And so we, we'll, we'll talk about inheriting the kingdom of God. Or here in Mark ten fifteen, receiving the kingdom of God. And we think, well, what exactly are we receiving? We receive God's rule. We receive the reign of Jesus. Jesus prayed, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. What was Jesus praying? See, in heaven, every celestial being, the the cherubim, the, the angels, the seraphim, all of these angelic beings, all of them are completely bowed down before the king of glory. All of them are submitted to and subjected to the reign and the rule of King Jesus and so they worship him because he is worthy gloriously of their worship and so when heaven God's reign is completely respected so everything in heaven submits to God's authority so when Jesus prays your kingdom come he's saying your rule your authority come on earth as it is in heaven May we here on earth be subject to your reign, to your rule. May all of humanity be under your authority, Jesus, here on earth as it is in heaven. That's what makes heaven so glorious, that everything and everyone is completely under the authority of God, gladly, joyfully bowed down before the king. So Jesus is praying that we would likewise bow down our hearts, and our lives before his majesty, that we would be subjected to his authority and that his will would be done in our lives here on earth as it's done in heaven. So the kingdom of God is best understood as the kingship of God. So the kingdom of God is, by definition, it is where Jesus is king, where Jesus is king ruling and right now as we sit here hearing the word of God proclaimed Jesus through his spirit is ruling in the hearts of his people he's ruling right here in this room in the heart of everyone that has bent the knee and bowed their hearts before God and saying Jesus you are my king he is ruling in your heart if you are a disciple of Jesus but what does this look like? Because all of us are naturally rebels. And we don't want the authority of Jesus. We don't want to bow down to him. We are sinful, and so we want what we want, and want our little kingdom. And we, we don't want the kingdom of God because we're sinful, we're corrupted. But being a part of the kingdom of God, what should this be Well, verse 3 gives us a powerful picture. It describes in this poem, it says that there's this great army, the people of God. It says, will offer themselves freely. It doesn't say they're forced. It doesn't say they're coerced. It's not against their will. The people in God's kingdom offer themselves freely. The literal... What it means is your people will be free will offerings. We offer ourselves gladly, joyously. We want to. So what does it look like to be a member of the kingdom of God? You want to pour out your life as a drink offering to God. Deep inside, you Want to give your life away for the sake of the kingdom of Jesus. You want to have your life marked by the holiness of the King. You want to give your money away for the sake of the kingdom. You just want to serve other members of the kingdom sacrificially and you want to go to places like India where we have missions partners and you want to reach the people that are currently not members of the kingdom who are out there in the kingdom of darkness and don't know Jesus as their king and are lost and it breaks your heart and you want to reach out to them and have The borders of the kingdom expanded so that more people can come under the loving rule of Jesus. You want that. You want to bow down before the majesty of the King, and you freely are giving your life as an offering before God. Now, to the world, this sounds crazy. This is nuts. Who does that? Who sacrifices themselves and gives away their money and cares about the kingdom of God more than their own self-centered pursuits and and comforts? Again, by our nature, we're rebels. By our nature, we prefer our idols over Jesus. What makes us want to be free will? and submit to the sovereign reign of Jesus. Number two, the sovereign reign of Christ is marked by redemption. There's the key. The reign of Christ is marked by having redeemed people that are members of it. This is a key to understanding the kingdom of God. Jesus said that he must preach The good news of the kingdom of God. Now, just stop for a second. How is that good news? Jesus is holy. It says in this text that he's going to judge, he's going to execute judgment and leave corpses. Does that sound like good news to you? Not to me. The king is coming back and we have offended him. He's holy. This is not good news. And so, think of it this way. Pretend you're a teenager, and pretend that your parents are leaving for the weekend, and they leave you in charge of the home. They say, here, take care of the house. See you in two days. Mama and I are going out for our anniversary, going to for the weekend, and so we'll see you on on Saturday night. Now, instead of being reliable and responsible, you throw a big party. And invite all of your friends. And it gets kind of out of control. And so your house is trashed. And everyone leaves. And so you wake up from your drunken stupor. And you realize everyone's gone. And your house is a total disaster. And then your phone beeps. And it's mom who says, oh, we're on our way home. See you soon. Is that good news? No, that's. Bad news! Like, that's the worst possible news. You don't have time to clean it up and hide your mess. You're going to get busted. And Ma ain't going to be happy. It's that, but so much worse with God. He gave Adam dominion, authority to rule over the earth. And Adam trashed. God's creation. And you and I, by our sinful nature and by our choice, we follow his lead every day. We continue to trash God's creation. We hurt other image bearers of God. We do. We mar his image, we disrespect him, we rebel against him. We pursue idols instead of the only true living water that will satisfy us. And so the king is coming. He's coming home. That's not good news. We're in big trouble. The holy king is coming back. And yet, it is good news. Because this king, yes, he's holy Yes, he's all-powerful, and he is sovereign, and yet he's merciful, and he came to rescue. Verse 4. Let's read that again. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. The kingdom of God is at hand, is good news, because this coming king is... A priest. We looked at this a few weeks ago with Melchizedek out of Hebrews and how he's described in Genesis that Melchizedek was the king over Jerusalem and he was a priest 400 plus years before the first high priest was called Aaron, Moses' brother. And so everything that is described by Melchizedek is pointing to, is foreshadowing the ultimate priest and King, that Jesus here, the Messiah, who's promised, Jesus is the better and the final high priest, chosen by God to represent humanity before God. But he's not just the priest who represents us, he's also the sacrifice. He is the perfect sacrifice and he came to redeem us, to rescue us, to liberate us from our slavery to our sin and to our idols that keep us in bondage to free us from the grasp of Satan, from the guilt of our sin against the holy God. So back to the question of a minute ago. How is it possible that sinful rebels like you and me want to give our lives away and submit to the sovereign reign of Jesus? Why? Why? makes us want to bow down to Jesus? Because we have been redeemed. We have been transformed. We have tasted the mercy of God. See, on the cross, God dealt decisively with our sin. Jesus bore our sin and our guilt that we deserved. He endured the holy wrath and judgment that's described in this psalm, that judgment Jesus endured, the judgment for us. And Colossians 2 says that that God the Father canceled the record of debt that stood against us with legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. Did you hear that? The record of debt that stood against you with its legal demands, this he set a cross, he nailed it to the cross, and so God took that record of all of your wrongdoings, and he nailed it through the hands of Jesus to the cross. And so your sins, you don't have to bear them anymore because Jesus endured them for you. And the verse continues, it says, And in doing so, God disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in Him, Jesus. And so by doing so, He disarmed the enemy, and He triumphed, and He shamed Satan. And so on the cross, God defeated Satan. He defeated sin. He broke the power that Satan has over us. And so we are free. We're free from bondage to sin where we can run to and enjoy our God and have our hearts satisfied in him. We don't have to go for the idols. We have his spirit. Right now, we have it. And so what we have is redemption and forgiveness, spiritual resurrection, soul, life, a new nature that yearns for the things of God and wants to submit to him. We used to be in the kingdom of darkness, and we were rescued and received into the kingdom of This is why Jesus calls the kingdom of God, he says, is the pearl of great value. What makes the kingdom so valuable? Nothing is more valuable than belonging to the kingdom of God, belonging to Jesus. Nothing is worth more than Jesus. And so belonging to his kingdom means that we recognize that we are hopeless without him. And we've tasted of his mercy. And right now, as you sit here, if you're a believer in Jesus, you're a member of his kingdom, you have his spirit. And so you have a taste of what it's going to be like one day when Christ returns and he consummates the kingdom and he establishes on a resurrected earth with resurrected people, a resurrected king will rule forever, and the whole world will be subjected to his authority, and it will be glorious. It's heaven. So that will happen one day, but until that day comes, right now we have the appetizer, we have a taste, we have the down payment of that in the Holy Spirit. And so we have communion with God right now. And he is ruling in our lives right now. And through this fellowship of believers, we, we have been, it's not full, it's not complete, but it's real. And we have a taste of what it will be like in the consummated kingdom of God right now. As members of his kingdom. And so we see more worth more beauty, more glory in Jesus than anything else that this world could possibly offer us. And so we no longer want to be independent from God. We want to bow down to Him because we know that that's what we're created to do. And that's what we're most alive and most full of joy and have the most freedom to fulfill our purpose of knowing and enjoying God forever. Submitting to the reign of Jesus. This proves that God loves you. He would offer this to you is evidence that he loves you. But if you're like me, I have many moments where I have a hard time believing that. I know me. Now, my wife knows me pretty well, but I know me. God knows all of me, and, and when I think that God knows me, all of me, and that he still loves me, I just have a hard time believing that sometimes. I just think he can't. He can't possibly love me. And I think the reason is that I sometimes confuse human love with the way God loves. You see, the way we as humans love, it's human love is like it's a response our love is a response to beauty. And so we see the goodness in another person. We see their virtue. We see that person's attractiveness inside and outside. And, and we, we see what's desirable and that's good and pleasing and lovely in another person. And so we enjoy that person because we like them because they're funny or because they make us feel good or for whatever reasons and, or because she's hot. And so you think, oh, I love her. And so you see what's attractive, and then your heart responds to what is lovely, and then you desire it, and and you have affection for what you have seen as lovely. The problem with that is that's self-centered. But that's not how God loves. You see, God did not see your attractiveness. God didn't see your beauty or your goodness or your moral virtue. God God wasn't attracted to your moral good looks. He didn't find you hot. I'm sorry. He, He saw nothing in you that was intrinsically good or desirable, and yet he loved. loves you, and he loves me, which is so hard to believe some days. You see, human love is a response to to what is lovely, what is beautiful, but God's love is not a response to what's beautiful. God's love creates beauty. See, you're beautiful, and you're lovely, and you're valuable, and you have eternal worth because God loves you. And he makes you more beautiful. And he gives you eternal value. And he loves you simply because he loves you. And then he presents us as holy. You see it in verse three, with holy garments. This is pointing to what we'll see in Revelation. Standing before God, fully redeemed, glorified in the consummated kingdom, holy, beautiful, because of what God did. And so what this means, what this means for you today is that our king has redeemed us and that gives us everything that we need. It gives us hope in the face of uncertainty. It means that we can forgive that person that has hurt us so badly because we have been forgiven by God. It means you can give up that sin that you think you can't give up. Yes, you can. Yes, you can. Because what you tasted is better. Jesus is better through his spirit. He will empower you. You can. You can. Jesus is a sovereign king. One, he has all authority. Two, through his spirit, he redeems us gives us new hearts so that we then want to submit to his rule in our lives. Number three, the sovereign of Christ is marked by victory. It's marked by victory, which is why I say that he is the conquering king. He says, Lord has your right hand. This is verse five. He will shatter kings on the, on the day of his wrath. He will execute judgment among the nations, filling them with corpses. He will shatter chiefs Over the wide earth. He will drink from the brook by the way, therefore he will lift up his head. So Jesus here is described as the King above all other kingdoms, who will defeat all of the enemies of God. And he won't even stop for rest to get a drink of water. He will lift up his head because he's not gonna just chill. He's not, he's not gonna just hang out by the water, he's not gonna waste time, he is on a mission. Jesus is marching forward and he's going to complete his mission of rescuing his people from Satan's kingdom. And he is going to then bring them into his kingdom. And he'll take that dragon, that serpent of old, and he will finally vanquish him forever into the lake of fire. And then our king will establish his kingdom fully on his new earth. That's is a promise. It will happen. And as we said, we have the first fruits, the tastes of that right now through his spirit in this community. And Psalm 110 is pointing to the victorious King Jesus. Who is Jesus? He's a conquering king. That's who he is. We read earlier from Matthew chapter 4 in the worship gathering, Hunter, our deacon for missions, read that. And I love what we read, how Jesus was proclaiming the good news of the kingdom. And while he was proclaiming the good news that the king has arrived, it says that he was healing the sick and driving out demons. Why? Well, as the king, he was driving out demons and he was healing the sick. Because he was pushing back the darkness. He was conquering. See, the king, with Jesus, with casting out demons and healing the sick, he was taking back the occupied territory that is rightfully his. Jesus made it, and it belongs to him, and those people belong to him, and he was rescuing them from the domain of darkness, and so he was taking back his people and his territory. The kingdom of God was advancing with the work and the life of Jesus. And the final defeat is assured, which is why Jesus says that the gates of hell will not prevail against his church because we are storming the gates of the dark kingdom. This is what we do. We battle Satan. And as we proclaim the gospel, we're taking back ground that is Jesus's. And so people that are in the domain of darkness are then brought into the kingdom of light. And so this is what we do. We advance the kingdom. Let give a few thoughts as we wrap up. A few application points on this kingdom and how it matters to you today. First of all, I'll say this. As members of his kingdom, we are called to reflect the values of his kingdom. If you read some on the Mount, Matthew 5 through 7, that's all that it is. It's showing these are the values of the kingdom. And so you should reflect what it looks like to be a member of his kingdom. And so you are a son or a daughter of the king of glory. Act like it. Oftentimes we don't. We need to be consistent with who we are in Christ. And if you're struggling with a particular area of sin that has a hold on you, be honest about that. Confess it to a fellow brother or sister that you trust. Be honest with God and move forward. Let God heal and deliver you from that. But we must live lives that are consistent with the kingdom. Second, we should be serving other members of the kingdom. You are a member of the greater people of God. It's not about just you, which is why we emphasize things like church membership, and we'll have that class next week. We have a sign-up sheet at the welcome table, so if you want to attend membership class next week on your way out, please sign up so we can prepare for you. There's a meal and so forth. But committing as a a covenant member is one expression of you being part of the kingdom of God, saying, I want to commit here to what God is doing through these people, these fellow members of the kingdom, joining a home group, being on a ministry team. These are all examples of ways that we do this. And lastly, as we mentioned, advancing the kingdom of the gospel. This is what we do. We preach the gospel, we share it with our lost friends, and then people come into the kingdom of God. They come under the rule of Jesus. People who are lost and don't know the joy of, of Jesus, we must tell them. We must invite them to your home groups, to your worship gatherings, but tell them about Jesus. Maybe you're here and, and you've never actually repented and trusted in Jesus. Maybe this is new to you it would be my honor to sit down and talk with you and pray with you and help you know what it means to follow Jesus. All he has is you trust him, turn from your sin and trust in Jesus. You will not be disappointed. I can assure you of that. You can stand on his promises. Jesus is the king. Whether you like it or not, admit it or not, it doesn't matter. Whether you agree with me or not, Changes nothing about the veracity that Jesus is the king. The question is, will you bend the knee? Well, you will. We all will. Will you do it today? Joyfully? Gladly? Or against your will one day? And you do not want to be in that situation. He is worthy. Let us worship our King. Pray with me. Father, this morning we are humbled that you would love us despite ourselves, that you would send your Son, the King of glory, to come into this world to defeat the enemy and to give us an eternal and blessed hope. We just praise you and we thank you that we can be members of your kingdom. I pray you would help us to be found faithful, that we would love you more than anything that this world has to offer, that we would truly treasure you and trust you, and that would lead us to obey you. Thank you. We just thank you, Jesus. And we pray for anyone right now in this room that does not know you, that they would repent and trust in you and experience the joy of your salvation. And we pray this in the name of our first love, Jesus.